team. It's wonderful to worship together as God's people. Well, let's spend a little bit of time together in prayer this morning. As you know, um, today is our Spring Fest celebration, and so we've all been uh, thinking and praying about what to give toward that, and I just want to spend some time praying toward uh, what we're giving toward. So, Lord God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to uh, be together this morning to lift up your praises. Uh, We want to pray for uh, the Chatterbox project that uh, we'll be giving to through our Spring Fest, and we want to lift up to you the many resources and training materials that will be made available to rural pastors throughout Zimbabwe and Mozambique, and we ask that you would use those gifts and those resources mightily to strengthen your teachers, those who will be teaching um, your, your people, that they would be strengthened in their knowledge and in their understanding, and we pray that you would then deepen your church's understanding of Scripture, of who you are, of the gospel itself, and that they would be made better proclaimers of that gospel. We also want to lift up to you Calvary 2.0, our project here to continue to put our building in a place that it can be more usable for you and for the kingdom. We thank you so much that we get to work together as one body. In Romans 12, it says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have gifted us as your church, that you've gifted us with one another, that we ourselves are gifts to the body. We thank you that you make us a body, a team, and we ask that you would continue to work that mindset in us that we would see ourselves as one team, that we would not be individuals that are out just to go after our own will and our own desires for things at this church. We also pray, Lord, that you would give us a sober assessment of our own gifts, for we know that in our own weakness we often can stray into two errors. We can think more highly of ourselves than we ought to and more highly of our gifts. And if that is uh, us today, we pray, Lord, that you would bring us back to reality. At the same time, or at other times, we can think too lowly of ourselves and the gifts that you've given to us and how you want to use us in others' lives and in the body, that we do have things to give. And if this is some of us this morning, we ask that you would bring us back to reality and lift us up to the glory of the gifts that you have given to us. And of course, we pray that all of this work that we're doing through Springfest and other things and our gifts and use, that it would just be a means by which you would expand the cause of the gospel, that you, by your grace, would empower us all the more to exercise our gifts in faith. And we pray this morning, too, that as we look into your word, that you would teach us about your mission, Lord Jesus, this mission uh, that you have sent us on. We want to learn. Uh, that's why we're here. Uh, we want to also join in more fully and we're excited about where you will take us as a body. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning, uh, Luke chapter 10. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, uh, we looked at three examples 
in the Scripture, in Luke 9, so you can just sort of glance back to the previous chapter, and we looked at three examples of would-be disciples, but not true disciples. Would-be disciples, but not true disciples. The right there before we get into the passage we're looking at this morning, we examined the hasty would-be disciple who was just too quick in thinking he could follow Jesus, but he didn't count the cost of what Jesus was actually demanding of him. We also looked at the hesitant would-be disciple who, in the opposite, was too slow in following, and he had the wrong priorities, and he wanted to add qualifications to what Jesus was demanding of a follower. Well, Jesus doesn't take qualifications. And then we looked at the half-certain disciple um, who kept looking back to his old life and wondering if this is the right decision to make to follow Jesus, checking it out with his friends to see if this is really a good deal. Well, in our passage today, immediately following this example of these three false disciples, would-be disciples, we have 72 true disciples that we're going to look at today, 72 of them. So please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 16, and we're going to learn from those who really do follow Jesus. Now, these 72, they're not hasty, they're not hesitant, they're not half-certain, but they accept the cost, they accept the priorities that Jesus lays out, and they're fully committed to the calling he puts on their lives. Now, the story of the 72, according to Luke, uh, teaches the church that all of his disciples, all of Jesus' disciples, are really on mission. And we're going to learn that just being appointed to discipleship is being appointed to mission. We don't really have an option. That's what discipleship is all about, following Jesus, is to be on mission with him, um, all of us. And this mission has two parts to it, we could say. One is the really exciting, successful part, when we see people come to faith in Christ, new churches started, people grow, whatever. But then it also has a highly uh, frustrating parts when that doesn't happen, and it's disappointing, and people are in opposition to us. Well, Jesus' words of commission to these 72 covers both of these situations. In verses 1 to 6, we learn that we should expect that God's going to keep His promise, that there is a harvest out there to go after and get. But then also in verses 10 to 16, that we should handle rejection when we face it, not by quitting, but by with holy dignity. And we'll see what he means by that. And we'll read the stories as we go. But along in Luke's gospel, we've seen him. He's already sent the 12 out, you know, the 12. He sent them out on a mission earlier, their first apostolic mission. That was in chapter 9 earlier. And likely it's recorded in Matthew 9 and 10. And now we're on another mission a larger mission campaign, a short-term mission campaign of the 72, and we're going to learn from them that being appointed to be a disciple of Jesus is to be appointed to his mission. So we'll start with the first story, and that is, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Well, the first question here is sort of a technical one because people will have different English translations, and some of your translations will say he sent out the 70, and some of your translations will say he sent out the 72. And, uh, and so the textual evidence is fairly evenly divided between the two, and so most English translations are going to say 72 at this point. But the discussion often surrounds something even more symbolic and important, and that is why 70? 
or why 72? And it has to do with the table of nations in Genesis 10. So if you go back there and look at that on your own at some point, this is when after the flood of Noah, the peoples went out and spread across the earth. And so what we're seeing then here in descending out of the 70 to 72, if you accept the, this, the symbolism is it recognized that now Jesus is sending out his disciples to go proclaim the gospel to all of those nations. And so when, then when you look back in the Genesis text, the Masoretic text has 70, but the Septuagint has 72. So probably too technical for most of you, but that explains why you have a footnote in your, bulb, in your Bible. Um, but the slight favoritism is for 72, so we're going to go with that. Well, first of all, there's a commission in verses 1 to 4, and then there's a strategic plan that Jesus puts out in verses 5 to 9. Now, the seriousness of this commission is immediately known because Luke refers to Jesus as the Lord. And the Lord sends out these 72, besides the 12, to various cities and villages. Now, remember where we are in Luke 9, 51. We just recently transitioned to the next section in Luke. Jesus set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. So we're on our way to Jerusalem from the north part of uh, in Capernaum area. And so likely all of these villages and towns that the 72 are being sent to are going to be in central Samaria and in Judea. And Jesus himself is planning on following up after they go to all these towns, and then he would perform um, some of his ministry, but they were to perform ministry in his name. And this time, they're not just doing setup. So earlier in Luke 9, he sent people, sent his disciples out just to do setup for himself. He would come and do the work. This time, he tells them to not only go set up for him, but also to do the work. And so we have 36 teams of two. Now, if we count the 12 in there on top of that, we could have 42 teams of two people that are going to a number of places over a number of weeks, and it would take Jesus a long time to follow up on all that. But this is a very large-scale operation, this short-term mission trip, and it could be easily, if you go count, that they would actually hit every single town and village in Samaria and in Judea. That's very exciting. And he sends them out <clears throat> two by two, which was a common uh, way of traveling at the time for the Jews, and it also became a common practice in New Testament missions. As you're probably aware, Peter and John uh, were sent from Jerusalem to check out the Samaritan work uh, in the book of Acts. You read that right away. Then Barnabas and Saul are sent together uh, to the, uh, from the Antioch church. Judas and Silas are sent from the Jerusalem council together to go check out what's going on up at the Antioch church. Barnabas chooses Mark, and then Paul chooses Silas when they split up on their second missionary journey. And then on certain occasions, Paul would leave Silas and Timothy together to minister in a place, and he would send Timothy and Erastus together on mission. So it's an obvious, it obviously has practical value. I mean, it's much more exciting in the companionship and in a partner. Um, there's protection, there's effectiveness uh, in, in your proclamation, and we, you've probably experienced this as well, if you've been on any kind of a mission trip before, that it's just, it's very helpful to be sent out two by two. Um, it's not a requirement, of course, um, and uh, it was probably practiced, though, uh, largely uh, in the New Testament time frame, and it's a good idea to do this. Now, in verse two, Jesus has this famous statement that uh, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers or the workers are few. Now, he said this to the 12 back in Matthew chapter 9, and he probably said it very often, that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
And the reason Jesus said it so often is because it's the burden of his heart. And it should make us reflect on whether or not that's the burden of our heart as well. The point is very clear. It's very simple. It shows that now is the time to go out and gather the elect of the world by the gospel. In John chapter 4, verse 34 and following, Jesus says similarly, he says to his disciples, my food, what sustains him is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I tell you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You see, it's a plentiful harvest, meaning that there are a large number of people out there from all the different people groups of the world that want to hear the gospel, and that when you share the gospel with them, they will come to faith in Christ. We live in the age of mission. We live in the most thrilling of times in the whole history of redemption. But there's a problem, and that problem is there aren't enough people that are actually going out to share the gospel with this task. More disciples are needed on this mission. It's a perennial situation, though, is a situation when Luke wrote his gospel. It's been the situation throughout the history of the church. Even today, the harvest is so large, and the solution to the problem is to pray. It's to pray that the Lord of the harvest, because it's Jesus' harvest, not ours, to pray to the Lord of the harvest to thrust out more workers into his harvest field. It's God's harvest. And he's doing the work, and he will then thrust out workers into the labor force. Now, we should realize also that the 12, they prayed this last time. And guess what happened? So we got to 72. That's pretty good multiplication. Well, then, who are the 72 going to be praying for? Going to be praying for the readers of Luke's gospel, the original hearers of it. And who are they praying for? They're praying for the church and eventually down to our generation. Disciples must always be praying for the expansion of the workforce while working at the same time ourselves and being dependent. And we should be praying now, praying often, praying continually, and not rest for this. Are you praying this prayer? And sometimes we're like, well, Lord, what should I pray? Well, here's a prayer you can pray right here. Jesus gave us lots of prayers. Here's one. And then be prepared because what are you going to do if God thrusts you out. Because that's what often happens when we pray this kind of a prayer. The great mission is so exciting, and it's going to involve a lot of risk as well, um, and dependency. Notice how he describes, Jesus describes this, this job. You're going to be like sheep among wolves. In other words, defenseless against very powerful people. Because powerful people don't like Jesus, because he's a threat to their power. And surely you felt like this before. If you've ever been on a, on a mission trip or in some kind of an evangelistic situation, you can find yourselves in this kind of spot often where it's like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen to us? Or there comes that knock on your door at midnight in your hotel, and you're wondering who it is. 
You have to trust God that He knows what's going to go on. And we're sent like these lambs among the wolves, but, you know, we have the Lamb of God who is on our side. And we don't have to really worry that much about what's going to happen because we're under His care and protection. And it's His mission. Now, on this particular short-term mission that they're going on, they're supposed to go as is. Now, later on, the instructions will change, but here it's as is. In other words, don't pack anything. Uh, You're just going to go right now. And it parallels what took place in Luke chapter 9, Matthew 10. And again, the emphasis is don't go home and pack stuff. Uh, Just go now. That's the point. Travel light, say goodbye to your wife and kids, and go. So it's only going to be a few weeks anyway. You know, it's not going to be that long, and you'll find supplies on the way. So this would be a great first lesson of total dependence upon God and total focus on the mission. Their vulnerability would actually end up strengthening them. And so they were supposed to do a couple things. They were supposed to skip these culturally long-involved greetings uh, on the streets because they would be sucked in to all of this conversation and meetings and tea and whatever it might be that isn't necessarily going to go anywhere. But they're supposed to be focused on the mission. And it would be hard for them probably to do it on this first trip. might seem a little bit rude, but it was necessary. And they would greet people in the homes anyway. That was the plan Jesus was putting before them. So we have a lot of instructions on the strategy of this plan and the particular lessons on this first mission tour that these 72 disciples needed to learn. And so here's the plan. So whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they put before you. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near to you. So this pairs, they're going out in pairs, they're greeting people, and they're going to seek out a son of peace. To somebody, this means somebody who's receptive to the message. And uh, if their peace, you know, um, in a sense, returns to them, of course, then it means that they're unreceptive uh, to the messengers and the message. Now, it could be, how do you identify a son of peace? It could be that something very simple here is just their demeanor. Like when I train teams, I usually just say, well, if they smile at you, that means you talk to them. It's pretty easy, okay? But, uh, but you know, it might be something a little bit bigger that they seem to have some spiritual interest and uh, they want this peace that God is after. So, well, likely many of these people in these homes that they're going to in these villages, they've already heard stories about Jesus. Um, they're excited to hear more about him. And salvation would likely come into these homes, these homes of peace. Um, And then guess what happens? If you go to a house of peace, they're receptive to the message, you share the gospel, they come to faith in Christ, what do you think the next thing that happens is? You planted a church in that house. Like it doesn't take that long. And, And it will start to grow. And this is a key part of the strategy that Jesus is putting them on in this particular mission. It's a very good strategy. Um, It's not the only one you can use, but I've been on many uh, trips that I've trained and led, and this is the exact strategy we use. And guess what? I can testify it works. It works very well. So when you get to this house, this person would then in their house would serve as your base of operations for the time that you're there, however long you're in the city or the village. Um, and they're, they're supposed to stay put, Jesus says. Don't go around like the itinerant philosophers of the day, always looking to upgrade their conditions. Right? So it's like, who's going to give them a better house, give them better food? So that's what the worldly itinerant preachers would do. 
But Jesus is basically saying, you have too much of an important task to do. You don't have time for the upgrades on this trip. So what you're going to do is just stay where you are and be content and get the mission done. And this household is going to provide accommodations for you, various types of support for the mission work. Um, and here's one of the best things that they'll provide, and I've seen it as well, is that at the end of the day, when you're all worn out and tired from traveling throughout the village, talking to people about the gospel and talking to them about Jesus and healing the sick, Jesus says, it's so nice to sit down and have fellowship with people that are friendly. I mean, what a wonderful opportunity to be encouraged at the end of a day of ministry in these homes. And so there'd be great benefits to staying put as God's emissaries. Now, Jesus also makes it a point here to point out that it's entirely appropriate to ask and receive support for gospel ministry. It's an Old Testament concept with Old Testament examples, and actually Jesus' words right here in this passage get quoted later on by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 5, where he says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle out an ox while he's threshing. And then, from Jesus, quoting here, Paul says, And the laborer is worthy of his wages. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul makes a very extensive argument in 1 Corinthians 9 uh, for this, and we have other examples in the New Testament churches. And then the Apostle John will instruct the whole church in 3 John chapter 1. It's only one chapter. But in 3 John, he says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers, meaning missionaries. And they bear witness to your love before the church, and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the heathen. Therefore, we ought to support such men, that they may be fellow workers with the truth. So it's a great privilege to be a part of God's larger mission team, whatever the role is He assigns you, whether that's going somewhere, whether it's sending people, whether it's supporting people, or whether it's all three of those things. And hopefully you've experienced that here at Calvary Church. And, you know, of course, the real heart of a disciple is that, you know, we wish we could go more often. Well, hopefully soon we can do some of that. We wish that we could send people more often. Well, hopefully we can do more of that soon. And of course, we wish that we had more resources to give. Well, maybe shortly we will. And then we get to verses 8 and 9. They contain the general instructions for their ministry in the cities and the villages. So they're supposed to eat whatever is put before them. Now, this is a really important statement, actually, because they might end up in the homes of non-Jewish people. Oh, boy, what are you going to do then? Yeah. Or, you know, places I've been to the world, it's like, I don't even know what that is on my plate, but I guess I'll eat it. And, uh, you know, but it would be useful training for them later, um, and Jesus is starting them early on understanding that the gospel is more important than all these kinds of religious scruples that they have. We think of Peter and the example of his dream that he had before he went to Cornelius' home. It was all to tell him that all foods are declared clean. There's nothing you can't eat or drink. Nothing. And so the Apostle Paul, he would give similar instructions to the Corinthian churches in 1 Corinthians 10. He'd say, eat anything that's sold in the meat market. Who cares if they sacrifice it to an idol. Just don't ask any questions. And if any one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions. 
Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, that they might be saved. And that's the focus. It's, to, it's self-sacrifice for the salvation of others. And, you know, sadly, today, so many Christians, well, not too many, hopefully, and it's decreasing, get hung up on all this kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with sharing the gospel with the nations. So you need to give it up and eat whatever's put in front of you and drink whatever's put in front of you and share the gospel with people. So then we get to the whole point of all this in verse 9, which is to heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So pretty simple. Do what Jesus has been doing all along, and they've witnessed that with his authority and his power. They can do all that. And then preach the gospel and that the kingdoms come near because Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has come to them. So this would prove the, the presence. They would prove the presence of the kingdom by just their message and their ministry and everything that they're doing, and so do we. And they would testify that Jesus has brought the kingdom. He inaugurated it. Uh, he brings its fulfillment. And there's going to be a lot that's going to fall out very soon. And, you know, very soon, uh, Jesus is going to go to the cross to die for our sins. Very soon, he's going to be raised from the dead. He's going to be ascended to heaven in glory. He's going to reign from on high in his session, right? There's the Pentecost is going to come with the Holy Spirit. There's a lot that's going to be coming soon that shows the power of the kingdom. And we, too, speak about these things in God's mighty works when we share the gospel with people. And so, at this point in Jesus' instructions for this particular trip with these 72, we should be really excited. The 72 are really excited. This sounds like a very powerful, exciting trip to go on. And we can expect that God's going to fulfill His promise that there's a great harvest. You know, as Jesus talks about this, that this is the state of the world, I wonder sometimes if Christians see this as the state of the world. Is the state of the world, in your mind, ready for harvest? People ready for the gospel? Or do you see the state of the world as so many Christians do, sadly, which is they sort of just lament the fact that we don't have a more Christian culture? What's the mission? The mission is not to create a Christian culture. The mission is to spread the gospel to people so that they can be saved. That's the mission that we're set on. And they would be successful, and Jesus would comment when they came back. Now, we won't get to this for a while, but in Luke 10, 17, if you just look when they come back, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, well, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's what was going on as they were out there sharing the gospel with people. And our appointment to discipleship is an appointment to mission, and we'll hear more about what Jesus had to say when they came back, because he has a lot of interesting things to say in his debrief session with them. But now we go on to the second lesson of the commission, that we have to be able to handle rejection with dignity, because in verse 10, he continues, whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, uh, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near, and I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So there's a lot of excitement at this point, but generally, you know, mission trips aren't always that easy, and this one's not going to be that easy. Oh, some towns probably were wonderful, and they just had wonderful stories to tell about how people were so receptive to the gospel, and, you know, we were able to get, you know, churches started in these homes, and then in other villages they go to, it was terrible, you know, they beat us up, kicked us out, you know, but we did what you said, Jesus, we shook the dust off of our feet. So if the city is unresponsive to the message, they're supposed to make a public statement as they leave. That's very bold. Does that surprise you? Because I think we tend to be wimpy Christians in our culture. We're like, okay, and we just sort of mousily go away. As if our message really isn't that important or something. If it's just like somebody else's message. Well, this is the same procedure that actually Jesus gave the 12 on their first mission trip. They're to use this cultural gesture, which is what it was at the time, of removing the dust as a sign of protest against the people. They're to proclaim how they're unworthy then to receive the kingdom of God because they've rejected us. They've rejected you because you bring the message that Jesus has. And the message of the gospel of the kingdom is a very important message, and people need to know that. Now, of course, they're not supposed to shake the dust off their feet in anger, but just as a testimony to the truth. They're not just rejecting, you see, some philosophy, this town, or some religious sect that sounds weird that's coming through town, or strange preachers, because, you know, you know we all know that we're all weird, you know. And so, you know, those weird missionaries show up, you know, the people, they're proclaiming some weird message we've never heard before. But they're actually rejecting God. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the kingdom. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting salvation. They're not rejecting you. And remember, back when Jesus launched his own public ministry, it's in Luke chapter 4, and you can go back and take a look at that. In Nazareth, the rejection was intense. They tried to throw him off of a cliff, you remember, in his very first sermon, right? But he kept preaching. And you know what he preached about primarily at that time? Judgment because that's what they deserve to hear. That's what they needed to hear. You need to speak the truth and be very clear if there's going to be any that are going to be saved. And so then the proverbial example of God's wrath for people who fail to hear his warnings is put before us. Yeah, you're going to be like Sodom. So if you don't know where that story is in your Bible, it's in Genesis 18 and 19, so you can go read the story on your own. But the people of Sodom, so this is the 21st century B.C. So it's sort of easy to remember because we're in the 21st century A.D., this is the 21st century BC. This is a long, long time ago when this took place. But this town and this region lived in excessive immorality, oppression of, of the weak, and a lot of pride. And so Jesus here reinforces to his disciples the, important, the importance of handling rejectors as they deserve to be handled. And uh, for they themselves, that is the disciples, the disciples need to realize that they represent the message that they're proclaiming. You know, and so how you respond is how you're then testifying to how great Jesus is. Now, this is, of course, rabbinic, rabbinic hyperbole to some degree, but it also likely reflects the reality of degrees of punishment in hell. That's orthodox doctrine. We'll talk about it at some point, but it comes up many times in Jesus' statements that there are degrees of punishment in hell. 
And the reason the judgment's going to be harsher for their hearers and rejectors is because of the historical redemptive realities are greater. There's a greater burden. Greater revelation over time has now come. And especially when they go preach the Messiah to somebody and they talk about who Jesus is and what he did and where he came from. And as a result, these people then in these little towns and villages they're going to are more culpable after hearing the gospel. And so we too must realize this true, that this is true for us. People are responsible for everything God's told them. They don't read the book, that's their problem. It's been given. Okay? So the revelation is there, not only general revelation that we all see and experience every day in our lives, but special revelation has been given. And it's readily accessible to basically anybody in the world by just a few clicks on your computer even. So it's out there. And then if somebody actually comes and talks to someone about Jesus Christ and explains the gospel very clearly, when you do that with someone, you've now just made them all the more responsible to believe in that gospel. And we need to realize the importance of our own message that we proclaim and and being messengers of Jesus. And so then Jesus goes on and he pronounces even further judgment, reminding his disciples of what he's already told them and what he's already done in front of them um, with other rejectors in verses 13 to 15. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, repenting of their sin, in other words. But it's going to be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon, these, these Gentile cities, than for you. And you, Capernaum, who think you're so great, right? You, Capernaum, will be not exalt. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you're going to be brought down to hell. So this is the next thing that Jesus has to say. He continues to speak judgment on the rejectors and is reminding his disciples, again, of what they've already witnessed. They've already witnessed Jesus preaching judgment. They've they've already witnessed the way he he deals with people who reject his, his message and his Galilean ministry so far. And he talks about these cities in which he performed most of his Galilean miracles. So these cities he picks out are the ones that have experienced the most of him. So he condemns the people of Capernaum because that was his headquarters for his mission in Galilee. So he'd be going in and out of Capernaum all the time. And his disciples, that's his headquarters up in the Galilean tour. And then he condemns the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida. These are two cities nearby Capernaum, uh, about two miles away in different directions. But basically not, not enough people responded to the gospel, not very many. And so Chorazin and Bethsaida are compared to the near-coastal Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. So if you read your Old Testament, you'll realize that these two cities were doomed. Five prophets continually doomed them. And that was Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Joel. That's a lot of prophetic doom being pronounced on your city. And this is the 8th to 5th centuries B.C. So these cities are doomed. And the reason they're doomed, if you go back and read the prophets, because they were idolaters, they didn't worship the true God. They made up gods to worship. And they exploited people. That's a constant theme that comes out in the prophets. God doesn't like it when people exploit other people. And, of course, the rebellion against God. Now, we don't know the deeds that Jesus actually performed at Chorazin and Bethsaida, but likely it was the same kind of stuff he'd been doing. And he says, basically, that the people of Tyre and Sidon, if... They've been around, and I went over there to preach to them. They'd all be repenting, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. 
I mean, what a condemnation. He's basically saying that these pagan people have more spiritual sense than you. And they would have repented. What a rebuke. And then Jesus continues to talk about Capernaum. And they get the harshest words yet, since they've seen and heard the most. Capernaum was a very proud city of their commerce, rich place, cosmopolitan city at the time. And so they were lifted up with pride because they were a worldly success. But Jesus tells them that they're going to be brought low just like Babylon was. In fact, just like Satan was. And they'll be brought down to the depths of Hades, depths of hell. He's actually referencing an Old Testament prophet. He's referencing Isaiah chapter 14. And Isaiah 14, the whole thing you can read, but I'll just read verse 13. It talks about the fall of Babylon. It also talks, most scholars think, about the original fall, the fall of Satan. But here's, you'll see Jesus' words coming from here. But in Isaiah 14, it says, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the amount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Jesus is quoting this section of Isaiah upon the people of Capernaum. So the unbelievers in these three Galilean cities, hopefully some came to repent, but most of them did not, in these three Galilean cities, and now in all of these cities and villages that the disciples are going to go to, these 72, who don't respond properly, um, and the people that we go to and proclaim the gospel to, and missionaries in the world today and ever since then, they're going to be guilty because the great gospels come to them and they haven't repented. So what about today? You see, the time today is even greater. The message is more urgent. There are more messengers going out now than ever proclaiming. And so the burden of responsibility and the amount of revelation that people receive just keeps amassing and amassing and amassing. So what about its burden on those who keep on hearing but never come to the knowledge of the truth? What about you if you're not yet believing in Jesus? You've been given the scriptures. Have you read them? You've been given so much, the church, people, opportunities, people probably share the gospel with you. But as you've heard, the dangers are really great if you don't repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's really simple, and you can have your sins forgiven and be spared eternal judgment and instead have eternal life with Jesus Christ and all of the church. You could be spared that. So why, why would you die? And then there's the emphasis in verse 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The sent one theme. Finally, Jesus closes with this theme. It's common in all the Gospels, and he explains the privileged, the privileged role that his disciples play as his authorized representatives. What an honor. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, we read this, that we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us, and we beg you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. And the way you're reconciled to God is by faith in his Christ. You know, Jesus isn't necessarily going to be showing up at all these cities and villages. Maybe he'll try. 
But at least for some time, he's not going to get there. A lot can happen before Jesus shows up. And so the people better believe the ones that he sent on ahead to proclaim the very same message and do the very same things that he would do when he showed up anyway. So how much more true today to reject a missionary is to reject God the Son and to reject God the Father It's to reject salvation. The Lord Jesus is only going to be showing up one more time. And when he shows up again, he's returning for judgment at the end of the world. So the time to believe is now. And so as Christians, as those who go out to share the gospel with people, we should handle rejection with a holy dignity. It's important to note that the disciples on other trips that they would be on, even Jesus himself and Paul and the church, they wouldn't necessarily handle rejection exactly this way every single time. That's really important to know. Okay? Not every single time would Jesus do it this way or have his people do it that way. That's not his intention. Each situation has to be addressed on its own regarding what exactly is needed to make God's glory clear and his salvation clearly known and what's at stake with the hearers. This requires a lot of reliance on the Holy Spirit and wisdom in the situations to know how it is exactly that you should be responding to people who reject the gospel. Now, in Jesus' discussion on handling rejection, we should really be coming to a greater realization of our calling as disciples. It's a high calling, and he really wants us to get this point because we're bearing his name, and we're bearing his message, and to be appointed as one of his disciples is to be appointed on a mission. You know, Jesus said repeatedly, as is brought up here in Luke 10 too, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to thrust out more laborers into his harvest. And so we need to keep a harvest mindset and stay filled with eager anticipation because it's God's work. Are you involved in it? Sharing the gospel with people? Are you making friends with people who don't know Jesus? Are you hanging out with people who don't know Jesus? Because that's what we're called to do, and we've seen Jesus do that repeatedly in the Gospel of Luke. And we also need to be prepared at the same time to deal with rejection because it's going to come too. And you know it's so easy because we're so frail in our humanity that it just takes one person, it seems sometimes, to reject us that we get all worried and we stop doing it. And we need the encouragement to keep on going. So hopefully you see your commission here along with the 72. There's a purposeful trajectory of missions to be observed in the gospel accounts and the rest of the New Testament. It's, it's, it's a whole topic for a missions conference sometime. But Jesus himself ministers, you'll notice, as the sent one from God the Father. And then he sends, chooses and sends the 12, and then he chooses and sends the 72. And then he gave the great commission for the whole church to go to the ends of the earth in Matthew 28. And then he, along with the Father, would give the Holy Spirit to the church at Pentecost. And then we observe the church in action in the book of Acts and other New Testament documents and we recognize the church throughout its history on mission, and then we ourselves become a part of the mission. It just keeps on going. It's this chain of being sent. There's one great harvest of God, and he's faithfully directing its completion. And he thrusts out laborers into his harvest field where he wills, when he wills, how he wills, and he uses a great variety of means. You know, there are so many needs out there. So many purposes and missions, different mission fields, different times, variety of places. And so there's not one right way to do missions. There's not one best way to do missions. It depends on the situation. 
on how to do it. There are many things that are needed. And our God has different places He's sending people. The gospel's progress in that place is at different stages um, in its progress. He sends us out in different time periods to different people. And it's all according to His working as He makes people's hearts responsive to His gospel. And it's also one of the significant ways in which He directs us as His people and directs missionaries to figure out where they should be going next as they process this information. And so we need to keep going out to new harvest fields. There are many parts of this one great harvest that still need the gospel message. Of course, in some ways, you know, the older ones have already yielded so much, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Some of it's easy, some of it's hard. Some of us might even say, well, the easy work's all been done. It's just the hard stuff that's left. Well, good, because that's more fun usually. So we could go do that. But we have to be praying for workers, and we have to be praying for direction for God for ourselves. Now, in a couple weeks, next Sunday, of course, we begin Holy Week, and so next Sunday's Palm Sunday, we'll be uh, studying uh, Psalm 110 together um, um, during Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Um, but when we come back after that, we'll be looking at the debrief of the story that begins in verse 17 and goes to verse 24, and they, they give a report to Jesus. This is what happened. And then Jesus makes a comment many comments about what happened, and he's going to give a great debrief, and we're going to learn, and we're going to be blessed on that, in that whole situation. So my prayer is that we'll remember that being appointed to be a disciple is to being appointed to be a missionary. Put it that way if you'd like. But we're always on mission as disciples of Jesus, doing works in his name and proclaiming the gospel. Well, at this time, if the, uh, those men who are going to serve communion with me would come forward, today is the first Sunday of the month. And it's our tradition to celebrate the Lord's Supper on this day.